0: Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: And it's that time of year again. That's right, Christmas, when we talk about the final years of a great composer.
1: Yes, that classic annual tradition.
0: (laughs) If you've been listening for the past couple episodes, this is the third installment of our dive into the divisions of Beethoven's life. Today, we're going to be concluding that series with the third and final late period. Before we do, if you haven't listened, I would highly recommend that you jump back, listen to our previous couple of episodes, um, so that you can have some context before we jump right in.
1: The late period picks up sometime around 1815, but some scholars put it actually as early as 1812, Now again, give or take some on these dates, they're really not hard-set divisions. During this time, Beethoven had much to be disappointed in. First, his ever-worsening deafness. This eventually became complete by about 1818, and he could literally hear nothing. As a result, we are actually left with some interesting primary sources, which are the conversation journals. So these were journals that were used for people with whom Beethoven was speaking, They would get to write down their part of the conversation, and then Beethoven would respond in words with his own voice. And thus these journals are mostly one-sided. Now what's more is that many were destroyed by their posthumous publisher, and those that remain are actually wrongfully altered by that publisher in some instances. So unfortunately, they have to be taken with a grain of salt.
0: Another point of frustration for Beethoven throughout his later period ...revolved around family matters. Beethoven was a bachelor for life. By choice, he determined that his work ethic and marriage did not mesh well. However, his brother Caspar Karl died suddenly of complications from tuberculosis. In his will, he had at first entrusted Beethoven... ...with the sole custody of his son, Beethoven's nephew, Karl. Now, this will was revised later that same day, prior to Karl's death that he actually wished both Beethoven and his wife, Johanna, to have joint custody of little Carl, and to please be harmonious with each other about it.
1: (laughs) Well, that part didn't come easy. Beethoven did not like Johanna, and she was of questionable moral character. Apparently, just a few years earlier, she had actually been imprisoned for embezzlement. For several years, until about 1818, Beethoven was in several legal battles to actually win custody of his nephew, whom he began to view more as a son that he never had. It seems that little Carl, the nephew, was slightly terrified of his temperamental uncle, but still respected and helped him out where he could. Though nearer to the end of Beethoven's life, as he began to grow more and more distrusting of everyone, this relationship did become strained.
0: Finally, Beethoven worried about his finances, though this was mostly unfounded. It is true, in the early 18-teens, there was an economic depression, and many of Beethoven's patrons had to reduce their allowance to him. But he was still very well-liked, and never really on the brink of bankruptcy. If anything, though, this fear spurred him on to continue writing. He did make an effort to put himself out there and endear his music to people, and eventually was better off than he had ever been before. Now, most of the works written in the final period were based solely on what Beethoven envisioned in his imagination.
1: He did begin to rely on Baroque styles of harmony and fugue, because these harmonic rules were absolute. He knew what they would sound like. But then, he also knew how to break these rules, and thus what to expect with that broken harmonic structure, and what that would sound like, Thus, he escaped the trap of sounding repetitive. In fact, perhaps because he was deaf, he was able to pioneer several unique sounds. His music of this period is often described as introspective. You can just imagine Beethoven sitting before his draft scores, pondering the harmonies and how they would play together.
0: Miraculously, Beethoven even adventured into a genre he had never tried before, the mass. He composed the Misa Solemnis between the years of 1819 and 1823. At the time of its completion, he thought of it as one of his greatest works. Of course, this is also when another of his greatest works, The Fantastic Ninth Symphony, was written. For a more in-depth look into this, please listen to our episode number 44, because of course we made one on the Ninth Symphony. (laughs) Obviously.
1: The last years of Beethoven's life, between 1822 to 1826, were spent basically exclusively on string quartets. He actually wrote five, and they are some of the most mysterious and complex string quartets even to this day. The last few months of Beethoven's life, however, were not fun. He suffered from several different symptoms. Swollen legs, ascites, jaundice, irritable bowel syndrome, and, of course, the deafness. Several times, doctors aimed to alleviate his discomfort with abdominal taps to bring out the fluid, but due to the relative insophistication of medical knowledge at the time, this may have only made his suffering worse.
0: After a trip, Beethoven fell very ill with pneumonia, and due to travel and his usual doctor being unavailable, he was not treated promptly. Apparently, he was in a coma for two days. ...but then was magically awoken during a thunderstorm. He apparently raised up his head and outstretched his arm majestically... ...before collapsing back to bed, now deceased. As he knew his end was coming, Beethoven had his will drawn up... ...and left his entire estate to his nephew, Karl. The funeral following his death was public. It is estimated over 10,000 people paid their respects to the deceased composer in Vienna... His pallbearers included later famous composers Hummel, Czerny, and Schubert.
1: Years later, in 1888, Beethoven, as well as Schubert at that time, were both exhumed and their grave sites were moved to the Central Cemetery in Vienna.
0: Creepy. That cemetery apparently is full of famous decomposers.
1: An autopsy was performed at the time of Beethoven's death, but again, due to a lack of medical knowledge, no one really knew what was wrong with him at the time, though his acute cause of death was attributed to liver cirrhosis and pancreatitis. Several modern pathologists have actually done their best to put together the puzzle pieces, now, we won't get into that here just in case we have some squeamish listeners. But for those that are really interested, there's a wonderful medical article abstract that we'll actually post in our episode description to read for those who are curious.
0: Now, let's get away from dead composers and talk about the music that they wrote. In particular, for our final, for now, look at Beethoven, we'll be delving into the piano sonata number 31, opus 110. This piece was written in the middle part of the late period in 1821, when Beethoven was most definitely fully deaf. It was written as part of a publisher commission, along with numbers 30 and 32. Apparently, after finishing these three piano works, the last piano works that Beethoven would compose, he declared the pianoforte to be an insubstantial instrument to carry out his true musical visions. But nonetheless, these sonatas are still remarkable in their ingenuity.
1: We'll start with the first movement, of course. It's in sonata form, what else, and Beethoven still held on to this one standard. However, the development section is only 16 bars long. Beethoven actually seems to have been doing more development in the exposition and recapitulation sections. It all starts out somewhat somber and ceremonial sounding, before moving into a more classic sounding melody with 16 note accompaniment for our first A flat major theme.
0: After some 30 second notes, we move into a gentle section, with both hands playing the treble, the right hand playing the first and fourth sixteenth notes, and the left hand plays the second and third, essentially the space between the upper melodic line. So nothing plays together, but it gives a sparkling bell-like texture.
1: That Beethoven is not afraid to write very spaced out chords, rather than the dense, dark chords he used to write. Here in the bass, we hear the 16th note chords are moving ever lower on the keyboard while the right hand plays higher and higher melodic lines. And this is actually our second theme.
0: Unlike the Waldstein sonata we listened to in our last episode, With very constant forward momentum, this sonata takes its time to step back and let the listener linger on the tonality. In between the flourishes, the music is actually quite slow and sparse.
1: We now move into our very short development section, and we have the first theme here played in F minor. takes a chance here to actually develop the bass line, so instead of just hearing the 16th note repeated chords, he actually adds a moving arpeggiated line.
0: He also adds a second voice, quote-unquote, to the treble, again experimenting with playing notes in the silences of the melody. Coming out of the development and into the recapitulation, we go right back into the first theme in A-flat major, but the baseline is still developing. Because of this, right off the bat it may not seem like it's actually the recapitulation.
1: As just a side note. In our previous adventures into sonata form, of which we've had many, we may not have actually mentioned this particular sonata rule, but the recapitulation actually starts once the theme comes back in the home key, not necessarily when the composer is done playing around with that theme and actually wrapping it all up. Though in the past, even before Beethoven, these things often did go hand in hand.
0: In addition, we see after this A-flat major theme is presented, Beethoven goes ahead and just throws in a whole key change to E major. Now, E major is not really a key we're supposed to go to from A flat. It should be E flat. So to get us back to the home key after this, Beethoven introduces some questionable modulation. But to sell it more, he asks the performer to slow down and even writes drawn-out notes, again giving the listener more time to ruminate on the tonality.
1: To finish out the movement, we get a very slow and ponderous chordal section... which is followed by some fast notes passed up and down the keyboard, but never having both hands playing together. The very ending is much different than the big grand 5 to 1 cadences we were used to in the early and middle Beethoven. Now we have a G flat major chord with an augmented seventh. So this chord isn't really diminished, but it's also not from the home key of A flat at all. And so then the resolution going directly to the tonic A flat is a bit strange, but it's what Beethoven wanted.
0: It's instances like this where I wonder if Beethoven's hearing impairment maybe emboldened him to try new things. Sometimes I wonder that if he was able to hear how different some things sounded, that he might have rewritten them.
1: But he, this was just basic theory. He knows that G-flat, which is a technically diminished seventh of A-flat, he knows that that is not real theory.
0: But it's one thing to know that, and it's another thing to hear it in practice.
1: <laughs> well, as you can hear, it's not so jarring that it's completely out of left field. That's true. It's just different.
0: <laughs> so let's move on then to the second movement. Into even in his later years, Beethoven never passed up the opportunity to take from his teacher Haydn and give us a little musical joke. Because here we're supposed to have a scherzo which is usually in a three-beat time, but Beethoven has written it into four. We have also moved into F minor for now, the relative minor of A flat major. This is a boisterous-sounding movement, much more so compared to the more dreamy Fantasia-like quality of the first movement.
1: This first theme has a bit of a question and answer going on, with Beethoven's favorite thing, dynamic contrast. In spite of the first bit of the theme being straightforward and on the downbeats, Beethoven quickly turns that all on its head with the help of syncopation. In spite of the boisterous nature, we still get little breather sections in this movement where time does seem to slow down.
0: This section features running eighth notes and has moved into D-flat major. But the eighth notes in the treble clef are about all that's going on here. The bass features a single note played on beat two of each measure, and nothing much else. The ending coda, quote unquote, of this movement is just half-note chords with measure rests between them. However, since the tempo is so fast, it's not like we are dragging along with silence. As the final chord holds, there is little eighth note flourishes on tonic arpeggios in the bass, reminiscent, perhaps, of a Baroque-style dance. Overall, though, it's a pretty quick movement.
1: And the third movement is pretty quick as well, it's just 28 bars long. The first part is essentially an introduction, and it's written very operatically. Here, Beethoven has actually marked recitativo, which is actually a word meaning to sing-speak, kind of a combination that is used in operatic plots to move the story along.
0: And along we move to the next section in A-flat minor. The piano is still playing in the operatic style, with the triplet sixteenths in the bass, sounding like a basso continuo of an operatic score. It really continues to be song-like. Here, we're feeling the strife. Our operatic pianoforte is going through.
1: And much like the Waldstein sonata from our last episode, this movement is a taka right into the final movement. And this final movement is not a rondo, as Beethoven used to always write. Instead, it's actually marked as a fugue, which is continuing his fascination with this Baroque genre. Here is our fugal subject. We eventually get this played into a three-voice fugue. Now, as a side note, and I cannot find any true evidence of this, but the six-eight time and the running eighth notes in the counter-melody give this fugue a sound almost like Bach's Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. However, this is probably just a coincidence of this Baroque sound and style.
0: Something that's very nice about this fugue is how easy it is to hear each episode. Due to the relatively simple nature of the dotted quarter note in this theme, it's very easy to hear right away as it comes marching in over the background eighth notes. We then get an interruption. While still fitting in with the overall shape of the fugue theme, we have considerably more decoration. Also, there is a definite melody and accompaniment line, rather than subject and counter melody. This sounds more like the operatic style coming back from the third movement. After all that, before moving back toward the few, Beethoven brings back the theme of silence between chords he's carried through the whole piece, this time with a great crescendo.
1: Is then an upward arpeggio with a diminuendo that quietly resolves into the fugue. But this time, the theme has actually been inverted. All the previous upward leaps now move downward by the same interval, and vice versa. This is basically a whole new fugue that Beethoven has tacked onto the end of the movement. And again, there are three voices.
0: But Beethoven gets more grand with this Fugue. Rather than just steady eighth notes over the simple Fugue subject, this time there are sixteenths added in, making it a little hard to discern where each Fugue episode is. Now you'll notice here, if you listen closely in the bass, Beethoven has actually written the Fugue theme in its original inversion but it's tied dotted quarters now, an augmentation of the rhythm.
1: We then move into a little development on the 16th note figure Beethoven has created in this third section, and it's passed in canon-like passages between the octaves. In a final grand lead up to the end, Beethoven has finally modulated us back to A flat major. We hear the speedy sixteenths in the treble, but the bass proudly sings out the fugue.
0: This is then switched over to large chords, proclaiming the subject in the treble, with sixteenths in the bass instead. This last little bit seems to almost refer back to the very first movement theme. There is a long note at the beginning of the measure, followed by the quarter and eighth note pickups at the end. It's not exactly the same since we're now in 6-8 and the first movement was in 3-4, but perhaps it is a little known. And finally, we get a nice long tonic chord cadence featuring a multi-octave arpeggio and a widespread tonic chord to finish this piece. And with that widespread tonic chord, we will conclude our three-part series of Ludwig von Beethoven. Was it three-part? Did we do four?
1: Uh, yes, it was three parts for the three periods of his life.
0: And if you're feeling a little Beethovened out, I don't blame you. There's a lot to go. There's a lot of Beethoven to go around. And so we thank everyone who stuck with us through this marvelous series, listening to some great pieces and learning quite a lot.
1: And because it is that very special time of year where we did talk about the end of Beethoven, but it's also the holidays. Uh, We are going to take a little (laughs) holiday break here at the time of New Year's. Um, Because of our usual two-week release schedule, that means we're going to be gone for quite some time, but we will be back uh, with our normal release schedule starting on January 23rd.
0: And until then, for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa.
1: And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The piano sonata number 31, opus 110, was performed by Peter Bradley Fulgoni. You can find the coffee house on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.